Well, it is my distinct privilege and pleasure to introduce our guest speaker this morning, Lee Strobel. Um, renowned, best-selling author uh, of so many, many books uh, that have been so helpful to my ministry and I know to your lives as well. I don't know how many of them I've given away just to help people who are searching and seeking for the answers and how those books impacted their search for Jesus Christ. Uh, he has been the teaching pastor at Willow Creek with Bill Hybels, at Saddleback with Rick Warren, and now at the Woodlands Church in Houston, Texas. He is also professor at Houston Baptist University. And just recently, back in April, there was a movie that was made of his life's transition from atheist to believer. It was called The Case for Christ. And if you haven't seen the movie, you need to see the movie. It's out and available. You can, I'm sure, uh, download it or you can get it on um, uh, probably Red Box or something of that nature, but you need to see it. <clears throat> one of the best Christian movies uh, I've ever seen. Not hokey uh, in the least. I'm just thrilled to have Lee with us today. You're going to be thrilled, moved, and challenged by his message. So, would you help make him feel welcome here at Sherwood Oaks this morning? Thanks, Tom. Good morning. Great to see you. It's great to get to know Tom and uh, Roger and so many of the staff and volunteers here at a great church. I'm, I'm so uh, pr uh, proud to be here. Well, I got to be honest. I'm glad to be anywhere <laughs> after what happened to me at Little Rock, Arkansas. I went to Little Rock to speak at a charity event and this pastor picks me up from the airport. And we're driving to the event, and we're chatting, and he says along the way, he says, yeah, I, I told a young woman in our church, I said, Lee Strobel's going to speak tonight. And she said, oh, the guy who wrote The Case for Christ, is he still living? <laughs> so I'm glad to be anywhere, to be honest. Uh, flew in from Texas, uh, Leslie and I moved to Texas not long ago, and we were assigned our phone number, our home phone number by the telephone company. And you may think, yeah, big deal. It was a big deal to us. Because no kidding, when we lived in Chicago, our phone number was one digit away from the cab company. <laughs> Seriously. So 2 a.m. in a bar on Saturday night, these drunk guys would misdial, calling for a cab, and our phone would ring. And it was bad enough getting waking up in the middle of the night, but then you had to get up, get dressed, get in the car. <laughs> it was such a hassle. So. I think we got a good number this time. I'm hoping anyway. Um, so our grandkids, our two oldest grandkids, live right around the corner from us. And uh, the oldest one, Abigail, who's 11, she has turned totally Texan. I mean, she's got the cowboy hat. Uh, she's got the cowboy boots. She's taking horseback riding lessons. She's totally into Texas. And the reason we know she's now a true Texan is the other day at dinner, she said, could I pray for dinner? We said, sure. So this is what she prayed. God is good. God is great. Thank you for the Lone Star State. <laughs> so that's a Texan for you. Well, I wanted to begin by quoting the words of the, fa uh, the greatest sermon that was ever delivered, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where Jesus looked out over a crowd of people 2,000 years ago but I believe by extension through history, he was talking to you today. And so in Matthew chapter 5, we find these words. Where Jesus looked out and said, you are the salt of the earth. 
You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine among others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. What did Jesus mean by those metaphors of salt and light? I think he was saying, you know, if you're a follower of mine, I want you to live a life that's like salt, that makes people thirst for God. I want you to live a life that's like light, that shines my message of hope and grace and forgiveness and truth, to shine that message into dark areas of despair. And the question I want to deal with today is, what does that look like for us in the 21st century right here in Indiana? What does that look like for us? Now, my buddy Mark Middleberg and I thought long and hard about this. We wrote a book on this topic, and we thought, what can we title the book? What, what would be appropriate? And we decided to title the book, The Unexpected Adventure. Because we're convinced that uh, if three things are true of you, if you're motivated to engage in spiritual conversations, if you make yourself available to do that, if you're prepared to do that, then you never know what's going to happen. Could start out an average and routine day, but God might ambush you with an unexpected adventure, an opportunity to engage with someone in a spiritual conversation. Now, it, it doesn't always happen the way you think it's going to happen. I had the most embarrassing thing happen to me. I was down south speaking at a conference with my buddy Mark, and the next day we had to go home and we had to get some breakfast. And so we saw one of these Cracker Barrel restaurants. Have you seen these things, Cracker Barrel? So uh, I'd never been to one. He said, well, let's give it a try. I said, all right. So we noticed they have rocking chairs on the front porch. Do they all have these rocking chairs? Okay. So there were these rocking chairs, and people were sitting in them. So in order for us to get to the front door, we had to walk in front of two people in rocking chairs. First one was a young woman, about 18 years old, dark hair dark eyes, quite attractive, young man about the same age sitting next to her. So we had to walk in front of them to get to the front door. That's not a big deal, right? So we're walking along, and just as I step in front of this young woman, I hear her say, what's a deist? I thought I just wrote a book about that. So I turned in my heel, I said, young lady, a deist is someone who believes that God created the universe, and then he walked away. I said, a deist is someone who believes that God sort of wound up the universe like a giant clock and he's just letting it tick down. I said, a deist is someone who believes that God is distant and disinterested in us. But I said, that's not what the evidence shows. I began to give her the evidence for God's involvement in the cosmos, God's involvement with humankind. Started to give her all this facts, all this data, all these statistics. Started to talk about the evidence of cosmology and physics and biochemistry and genetics. I'm just laying the stuff on her, and she's looking at me, and her eyes are getting bigger and bigger. And I'm on a roll now. You can't stop me. Talk about Jesus entering into human history, the incarnation, his miracles, his death. I started to give her the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And she's looking at me. Her eyes are getting bigger and bigger. And I turn to my friend and I say, could you believe this? I happen to walk in front of her. She said, what's a deist? My friend said, Lee. She said, buenos dias. <laughs> I really wish that were a joke. That's what happened. It was, she was freaking out, by the way. I will say that. I will say that. But... But you know what the good news was? The ice was already broken. 
how do you not get into a spiritual conversation at that point? And turned out, she was there with her boyfriend. He was in the state track meet. And they took us back to the hotel room where the coach was and all the athletes. And we got to talk about Jesus for about 45 minutes. So it turned out all right. But man, that was embarrassing. But you never know. You never know what kind of adventure God will have you on. But it will, you know, being involved in this unexpected adventure um, really raises all of the other areas of your spiritual life. Your prayer life takes on a whole new dimension because you're praying, God, I don't know what to say. I'm nervous. Help me. It's when our worship takes on a whole new dimension because we're not just worshiping, uh, you know, for ourselves. We're worshiping This God who loves more than just us. He loves our spiritually confused friends even more than we do. It's when our Bible study takes on a whole new dimension. Because we're not just looking for abstract theological truths. We're looking for something that might help reach a friend. It's when our dependence on God is at its greatest. Because apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we know there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to lead anybody to faith. So how can we engage in these unexpected adventures in the 21st century. Well, I I imagine, what if Jesus physically lived in my house? What would I learn from the master as he would engage with the neighbors, as he would engage with people at the grocery store and so forth? What would I learn from him? And as I studied his life, I learned so much about uh, how I think he would interact with people. I just want to share a few things that I found personally encouraging uh, out of the teachings of Jesus. The first thing is this. I think before Jesus would talk to his neighbor about their heavenly father, he would talk to his heavenly father about his neighbor. In other words, he would pray. I mean, before Jesus embarked on anything of significance, he brought it to the father in prayer. In fact, have you ever thought about the fact that the, uh, when, uh, the, the prayers of Jesus for spiritually lost people continued right up until his final gasps on the cross? That when you read the New Testament, the original Greek in which it's written, uh, what you notice is the imperfect tense of the Greek suggests that Jesus did not just say it once, but he kept repeating it all through the torture of the crucifixion while the nails were being driven through his hands, while the nails were being driven through his feet. He kept repeating, he kept praying, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus' prayers for people so spiritually depraved they were torturing to death the Son of God continued right up until his final gasps on the cross. And as British pastor John Stott said, in light of that, How can we justify not praying consistently and fervently and specifically and expectantly for spiritually confused people in our lives? Now, I know that, you know, theologically speaking, that uh, we can't, by our prayers, force someone against their will to bend their knee to Jesus. I get that. But I'm also naive enough to believe the words of James, which say, uh, you know, the the, the prayers of righteous people make a difference. Because I've seen it against all odds, time after time after time. I remember once uh, I was baptizing this woman at uh, Willow Creek Church outside Chicago, where I was a pastor. And um, uh, she was an older woman who had come to faith, and she brought with her onto the platform uh, a man, 
he was about 70 years old, kind of a weathered kind of guy, kind of a tough-looking dude. And because um, we said you can bring someone, maybe a spouse, with you or so forth. So I, I'm about to baptize her. I say, you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? She said, oh, yes, with all my heart. That's great. I was going to baptize her. And I, I didn't generally do this, but I felt prompted to say to the man, uh, excuse me, are you her husband? He said, well, yes, I am. I said, have you given your life to Jesus? And he glared at me. And he, his face kind of screwed up. I thought he was going to hit me. And, and then he burst into tears. And in front of thousands of people, he's weeping and sobbing. And, and, and he says, no, I haven't, but I want to right now. I said, wait a minute, time out. Can we do this? Okay, great. So in front of thousands of people, this guy repents of his sin, receives forgiveness through Christ, and I baptize him and his wife together. So afterwards, I'm walking down off the platform, and this other woman I didn't know comes running up to me, and she throws her arms around me, and she's weeping and sobbing and crying, and all she can say is, nine years, nine years. I said, who are you? And <laughs> What do you mean, nine years? She said, that's my brother who you just led to the Lord and baptized. I have been praying for that man for nine long years. And for nine years, I've seen not one glimmer of interest in God, but look what God did today. And you know what I thought? My first thought was, there was a woman who was glad she didn't stop praying in year eight. Is there someone you've stopped praying for? Someone you used to pray for, but eh, you kind of gave up? I think she would say, keep praying. Keep lifting them to the throne of grace. In fact, uh, somebody asked me a question a while back, and I found it very convicting. See if you do. Here's the question. What if tonight you're alone in your room and Jesus physically appears? And he looks at you and he says, I am going to answer every single prayer that you prayed last week. If he said that to you tonight, would there be anybody new in the kingdom of God tomorrow? I mean, that's a, that's a, that can be a convicting. Are we praying? You know, I know many of you identified a one life. That is someone who God has put on your heart Someone you know who's maybe spiritually confused and, and you committed to uh, reaching out to them and praying for them. And I, I think that is so great to identify who is it that God brings into your mind? What face does he bring into your mind who we should be praying for? I think if Jesus lived in my house, he'd pray consistently, fervently, expectantly, specifically for lost people in the neighborhood. Secondly, I think if Jesus physically lived in my house, he would let all the neighbors know the door is always open for questions. You got a doubt? Got an obstacle? Got an objection? Got a hesitation? Come on in. Bring the Starbucks. We'll sit on the floor. We'll talk about it. I mean, I can't think of anybody in the New Testament who Jesus slam dunked if they came to him with a sincere question. Can you? In fact, my favorite example of this is John the Baptist. If anybody should have been absolutely certain of the identity of Jesus being the Son of God, it was John the Baptist. He once pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He baptized Jesus. 
He saw the heavens open up. He heard the voice of the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. John the Baptist once pointed to Jesus and said, I have seen and I testify this is the Son of God. But then what happens? He gets arrested. He gets thrown in prison. Question. What happens to a lot of us when tough times come? Doubts begin to creep in, don't they? So here John is in prison. Now he's not so certain anymore. Now he's not so convinced anymore. Now he's got some hesitations. So what does he do? Does he stew in that and let it erode his soul? No. He gets some friends together. He said, look, track Jesus down and just ask him once and for all, are you the one we've been waiting for or are we to wait for somebody else? So his friends tracked down Jesus. Hey, Jesus, you know John. Well, he got busted. And now he's freaking out. So would you just answer a question? Are you the one we've been waiting for or we to wait for somebody else? Now, here's the issue. How does Jesus respond to this? Does he get angry? Does he say, how dare John have the temerity to dare to ask a question, to express a hesitation? No. Jesus said to those followers of John, Go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, go back to John and tell him about the evidence you've seen with your own eyes that convinces you that I am the one I claim to be. So they go back and they tell John, but here's the thing. Has this little incident now disqualified John from any role in the kingdom of God because he dared to ask a question? No. It was after this incident that Jesus got up before a group and he said, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. John the doubter. John the guy who had questions. Friends, it's okay for those of us who are Christians to ask questions. It's even okay to have some doubts. As long as we do what John did and we pursue answers. Because there are good answers to the toughest questions of life and faith. And the Bible tells all of us who are Christians in 1 Peter 3.15 that we need to be prepared to help our friends who have spiritual sticking points in their life. You know, questions or obstacles that are sticking points that are holding them up in their spiritual journey. We're told we all need to help them get beyond those sticking points because there are good answers to these tough questions. I've seen that illustrated a thousand times. I remember um, when I was an atheist, one of my friends was the national spokesman for American Atheists Incorporated. That was his job. And we were friends from my atheist days. And so when I became a Christian, we started to have these conversations where I tried to share Jesus with them. And we get into little conversations and debates back and forth. And, and so one day he said to me, you know, Strobel, you Christians are all alike. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, you'll give the case for Christ, you'll give the evidence for God, but you won't then give the evidence against God and let people make up their own minds. I said, oh yeah? I said, I'll tell you what, you go get the smartest, the most articulate atheist on planet Earth, and I will fly him here to this church, and I will allow him to stand on our platform and proclaim the case for atheism. But I'm going to get a Christian 
and that Christian's going to present the case for Christ, and then he'll debate your atheist, and we'll just let people make up their own minds. He said, you wouldn't do that. I said, oh, yeah? We shook hands on it? My very next thought was, man, I should have asked a senior pastor before I committed to this. <laughs> too late, too late. This, this thing took on a life of its own. The news media went nuts in Chicago. Chicago Tribune did four advanced articles on this debate. Talk television, talk radio, were buzzing about it. Why? Because the church said, we're not afraid to have an intellectual shootout. We're not afraid to put our evidence to the test. I started to get phone calls from radio stations around the country. Can we broadcast this debate live? Sure. Pretty soon we had 117 radio stations coast to coast going to broadcast this thing live. One radio network sent commentators like it was a prize fight or something. I was a jab by the Christian. I think the atheist on the ropes. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. The night of the debate came, traffic was literally gridlocked within two miles of our church. We opened the doors to our auditorium. People ran down the aisles to get a seat. When's the last time you saw someone run into a church? We had 7,778 people show up. Overflowed our auditorium. We had live television hookup on various other rooms in our campus. We had coast-to-coast -coast radio about to go on the air. And I was going to be the moderator. I'm nervous. I'm pacing backstage. And, and one of our elders comes up to me and says, So, Strobel, we are going to win this, aren't we? <laughs> so... So the debate begins, and we chose as our representative of Christianity a man I consider to be the greatest defender of the faith in the world today, uh, Dr. William Lane Craig, to earn doctorates, a colleague of mine at Houston Baptist University, um, brilliant scholar. He gets up, and he gives an opening statement, 25 minutes summarizing the evidence for Christianity, the most powerful summation of the evidence I've ever heard. And I wanted to cheer, but I was a moderator. I had to be neutral. Thank you, Dr. Craig. And now the atheist, Professor Zindler. <laughs> Good luck, buddy. So this guy, <laughs> they chose their best guy. He gets up, he stands behind the podium, and he's about to open his mouth. But we didn't tell him one thing. Not that he would have cared, but we didn't let him know that right where he was standing, underneath the platform was a room. And that room was filled for the entire two and a half hours of the debate with Christians who were praying that the case for Christ would go out with all its convicting power and the case for atheism would be recognized for the bankrupt philosophy that it is. And if you've seen a video of that debate, you can go on YouTube and you can see it. You know God answered that prayer because we had people vote. What's your spiritual condition as you come in? Who won the debate? What's your spiritual condition as you leave? Initially, we just took the ballots of people who came in as skeptics, as atheists, as agnostics, and non-believers. Among that group, having heard the case for Christ and the case for atheism, over 8 out of 10 said that the case for Christ was by far the most compelling. And 47 people walked in as confirmed atheists, heard both sides, and walked out as followers of Jesus Christ. And not one person became an atheist. I'm just, I'm just saying. So friends, what's my takeaway? Am I saying, therefore, let's all go around debating people? No. I think God has anointed certain people to do debates. They generally have PhDs and they're trained to do this thing. God bless them. Love them. It's a tremendous ministry. 
It's not me. I'd be a terrible debater. It's probably not you. It's not most Christians. I think for most of us, the key word is not debate. It's dialogue. It's conversations. It's relationships. It's friendships. It's creating a safe friendship, a, cre- a safe relationship where people feel confident enough to, bra- to raise tough questions about faith. It's where we do more listening than talking. It's where we, instead of do preaching, we validate them and where they're at in their spiritual journey, respect them. Um, one, of the, one of the great ways to do this is through what are called spiritual discovery groups. And that's, they're starting that, it, uh, these groups here at this church, made up of half a dozen or so people who are spiritually curious, and then a Christian couple or two Christians who kind of lead the group. And, um, you know, Pastor Tom has got a group like this. Roger's got a group like this, the executive pastor. And uh, we're going to be starting a lot of these groups here at this church. And they are, they sound a little intimidating to do these groups. They're not, because you don't have to be the Bible answer man. You don't have to be the Bible answer lady. That's not what these are about. These are about loving God and loving people. And if you love God and if you love people, we can train you how to do a group like this. I mean, my buddy Gary Poole, who's here at this church helping out with this, um, who's the world's leading expert on these groups, when we did this in Chicago, he had over 1,100 non-believers in these groups. And he monitored this over a period of years, and he found that 80% of them came to faith in Jesus. And it generally wasn't a good answer to a question that did it. It was a relationship. It was a friendship um, over time. And uh, so, if you want to know how you might try leading one of these groups, I'll tell you about how you might uh, uh, do that a little bit later. But um, I think that's an exciting development. But even in our personal relationships, to create that safe place, it's okay to ask questions. Um, But it's important to pursue answers. Third thing, I think if Jesus physically lived in my house, is that he wouldn't just share his faith, but he would show his faith. Through servanthood. Jesus was a servant. He served the blind who he restored their sight to. He served the lepers by restoring their health. And then in the greatest act of servanthood in the history of the universe, he gave his life as a ransom. And and when we sacrificially serve other people in the name of Jesus Christ, that putting our love into action in that way can crack open the hardest of hearts. Um, remember I quoted earlier Matthew 5.16 that says, let your light shine among others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And the word in Greek there for good does not just mean do good deeds as opposed to bad deeds. There's another connotation. The connotation is that these deeds are winsome, that they're attractive. So what Jesus was saying is, I want you to serve other people in a winsome and an attractive way that causes their eyes to drift heavenward toward your heavenly Father who motivates you against the grain of this me-first world to serve someone else. And I think if Jesus physically lived in my house, he would walk around with kind of a compassion radar, just looking for opportunities to serve people. And we can do that. We can walk around our neighborhoods and our workplaces with a compassion radar, looking for opportunities. We might have an elderly woman down the block who, if you took her to the grocery store once a week, it would be such a blessing to her. 
Or you might have a single mom who lives in your neighborhood and she's got two kids, she's working two jobs, she's keeping, barely keeping her head above water. It's a tough life. And if you and your spouse went and said, hey, we're your neighbors and we'd love to babysit your two children for the evening, maybe next four Friday nights so that you can have some time to yourself. What a blessing that would be. Or there might be a, a, a kid down the block, high school kid who's lonely and he just wants someone to shoot baskets with him on the driveway. But I think Jesus would teach me, have a compassion radar that looks for opportunities to serve in a way that would cause eyes to drift heavenward. And then finally, fourth, if Jesus physically lived in my house, above all else, he would be authentic in the way in which he related to his neighbors. He would be authentic. In other words, he wouldn't just communicate the gospel, he would embody the gospel. There would be a congruence between his character and his creed, between his beliefs and his behavior. And the question is, what, what do people see in our lives? Because I can almost guarantee you something. If your neighbors know that you're a Christian, if they know you go to a church like this, or your friends at school or um, uh, colleagues at work, if they know you're a Christian, I can virtually guarantee you they have a radar scanning your life. You know what it's called? The hypocrisy radar. Beep, beep, beep. Seriously, they are watching you, I guarantee it, 24-7. What are they looking for? False piety. What are they looking for? Kind of a holier-than-thou attitude. What are they looking for? People that, you know, put on a phony Christian happy face and pretend like everything's great when we know it's not. What do they see? I want to read you a little letter that I got from a woman named Maggie. Maggie is a 24-year-old nurse who was poisoned against God and against Christianity because when she was a little girl, she was raised by people who claimed to be Christians but who abused her. And this is what she wrote. She said, the Christianity I grew up with was so confusing to me even as a child. People said one thing, but they did another. They appeared very spiritual in public, but in private, they were abusive. What they said and what they did never fit. There was such a discrepancy. So listen what happened. I came to hate Christianity and did not want to be associated with the church. Friends, that is the power of inauthentic Christians to repel people from God. Jesus used these metaphors of salt and light in a positive way, but the ugly truth is some Christians are like salt in a wound. Some Christians are like lights that glare at you on a highway and make your head go the other way. And that's what happened to Maggie. But then guess what happened? She was reading the Chicago Tribune one day, and she read about a debate that was coming up between an atheist and a Christian <laughs> at our church. And she said, I'm going to go because I want to see the Christian humiliated. So she came to the debate. Well, guess what? The Christian won the debate. So now she's really confused. So she'd write me these long letters. Dear Lee, here are the first 10 reasons I don't believe in God. Boom, 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 boom. So I started to write her back. Dear Maggie, those are great questions. I'm glad you're asking them. And then I thought, this is silly. So I called her up. I said, Maggie, so great that you're asking these questions. But this is kind of an inefficient way to get answers. Here's what I'd suggest. We have these spiritual discovery groups in our church. 
little groups of half a dozen people like you have questions and doubts and kind of spiritually curious, led by two Christians. And maybe if you joined a group, you could make some friends and you could kind of go on a journey together. She said, oh, that would be great. So Maggie joined one of these spiritual discovery groups. So let me read to you what she wrote about that experience. Why? Because Jesus has called each of us to be salt and light. But sometimes I think we wonder, well, what do people want from us? What are they looking for from us? And Maggie explains it so well. So here's what she said. Listen to what she needed. She says, so when I came to church and to my small group, here's the first thing she needed. I needed gentleness. I needed to be able to ask any question. I needed to have my questions taken seriously. I needed to be treated with respect and validated. But most of all, listen to this, most of all, I needed to see people whose actions match what they say. I'm not looking for perfect, but I am looking for real. Integrity is the word that comes to mind. I need to hear real people talk about real life, and I need to know if God is or can be a part of real life. Does he care about the wounds I have? Does he care that I need a place to live? Can I ever be a whole and a healthy person? Well, I've asked questions like these of the two leaders of my group who are Christians, and I've not been laughed at or ignored or invalidated. I've not been pushed or pressured in any way. In fact, she said, I don't understand the caring I've received from the Christians who lead my group. I don't understand that they don't seem afraid of questions. They don't say things like, you just have to have faith. You just need to pray more. They don't seem to be afraid to tell who they really are. They just seem genuine. And then Maggie sent me a copy of a poem that she wrote for the leaders, the Christians who led her little group. And when I read this poem, I said, no, 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 this is a poem every follower of Jesus on planet Earth needs to hear. Why? Because this is the heart's cry, the unedited, unfiltered heart's cry of a woman poisoned against God in the church, the very people who Jesus is calling us to reach with his message of love and hope. So listen to her words. And imagine this 24-year-old nurse poisoned against the church and God looking into your eyes as a follower of Jesus and saying these words. Do you know? I mean, do you understand that you represent Jesus to me? Do you know? Do you understand that when you treat me with gentleness, it raises the question in my mind, well, maybe he is gentle too. Maybe he isn't someone who laughs when I get hurt. Do you know? Do you understand that when you listen to my questions and you don't laugh, that I think, well, what if Jesus is interested in me too? Do you know? Do you understand that when I hear you talk honestly about arguments and conflicts and scars from your past, that I think, well, maybe I am just a regular person instead of a bad, no good little girl who deserves abuse? If you care, then I think maybe he cares. And then there's this flame of hope 
that burns inside of me. And for a moment, I'm afraid to breathe because it might go out. Do you know? I mean, do you understand that your words are his words? That your face is his face to someone like me? Please, be who you say you are. Please, God, don't let this be another trick. Please, let it be real this time. Please. I mean, do you know? Do you understand that you and you and you, that you represent Jesus to me? I'll tell you what, I read that poem for the first time and I cried. Because what flooded into my mind were not all the times I've been like Jesus of people, but all the times I was too busy doing the professional work of clergy to give a rip about my neighbor who lives a nine iron shot from my house who is spiritually separated from God. I said, this got to stop. So I called up Maggie. I said, Maggie, thank you for that poem. I found it very convicting. And I want to call and get your permission to read it to the whole congregation this weekend. Would that be okay? And she said, oh, Lee, haven't you heard? And my heart sunk. I thought, oh, no. What inauthentic Christian she met now that's repelled her again from God? I said, no, Maggie, I haven't heard. What happened? Tell me what happened. She said, no, it's a good thing. I said, what? She said, Lee, on Tuesday night, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I was stunned. I almost fell over. I said, Maggie, that's fantastic. The party's probably still going on in heaven. That's great. But Maggie, you've got to tell me something. You were running away from God. You were poisoned against God in the church. What was it that brought you across the line of faith? What five facts did you learn that convinced you that Jesus really did return from the dead? She said, it wasn't like that with me. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. What ten facts did you learn <laughs> that convinced you that the Bible is the word of God? She said, that wasn't like that with me. I said, well, then what happened? What happened? Now she's kind of embarrassed. Now she kind of shrugs over the phone. She says, well, Lee, I, I just met a whole bunch of people at church who were like Jesus to me. I thought, what a lesson. What a lesson for someone like me who likes to pin somebody up against the wall. Don't like these 10 reasons for the resurrection. I'll give you 10 more. <laughs> now, Keep in mind, she did hear the evidence presented by William Lane Craig, one of the great defenders of the faith. She heard the evidence. But what did God use to bring her across the line of faith? Friends, I know the Christian couple that led her little spiritual discovery group. They are introverted, quiet, um, unassuming people who love God and love people. They loved her across the line of faith. And you know what the good news of that is? We can do that. We can do that. We can pray for people. We can do that. We can help them find answers to their tough questions. We can do that. We can serve them and, and thereby point them to the love of Christ. We can do that. But the easiest thing of all is we can just be authentic. We can just be ourselves. We don't have to pretend we're smarter than we are. We don't have to pretend we're more spiritual than we are. We can just be sinners saved by grace. And if we're open and if we're willing, God will take us on a series of unexpected adventures that'll be the joy of our lives. And if this kind of thing resonates with you, if you say, yes, I want more of this in my life, I want to invite you 
right after this service for just a seven-minute meeting to come right down here to these pews in the front. I want to talk to you for a couple of minutes, and, and we're going to offer 10 different opportunities that are opening up in this church. Maybe to lead a group like that. Maybe to do this or that or something else. We have all these opportunities. But if your heart resonates, says, I want to be stronger salt, brighter light, here's your opportunity to get involved. And uh, so if you just want some more information, join us afterwards. So I'm going to close with this. With one last story, because it's my favorite unexpected adventure I've ever had. And it was when I was a new Christian. I was still a newspaper editor in Chicago. And I was packing my stuff up one day at the end of a long day, getting ready to go home. And the Holy Spirit just convicted me. I, I felt this very specific movement in my soul that I needed to go into the business office of the newspaper and invite my atheist friend to Easter services at our church because Easter was coming up. And I thought, this is great. If God is really prompting me to go do this, this something's going to happen. He's going to repent right there. This is going to be great. <laughs> so I had all this confidence, you know. So I walked over to the business office with great confidence. I walk in, I look around. All I see is my friend behind his desk. I said, thank you, Lord. So I went up to him and said, hey, how you doing? I said, I'm doing great. I said, hey, Easter's coming up. He said, Strobel. You know I'm an atheist. I don't believe in Easter. I said, yeah, 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 but Easter is when we remember the resurrection of Jesus. He said, oh, he wasn't resurrected. I said, well, you know, actually, there's really good historical evidence that he was. I began to give him some of the historical evidence for the resurrection, and I went on for a couple of minutes, but I could see this wasn't helping. So I switched gears. I thought, okay. I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, do you have any questions about God? He said, no. Oh, darn. <laughs> I said, well, let me ask you this. Do you ever think about God? He said, no. Oh, um. I said, well, you love music, right? Oh, yeah, I'm really into music. We got great music at our church. Why don't you come this Easter, bring your wife, I'll bring Leslie, and come to our church. You'll love the music. And he looked at me and said, I don't want to go to your stupid church. Hey, okay, no problem. Look, if you ever have a question, you know where my office is, I'll see you later. And I walked out and I thought, what was that all about? Why did I feel the specific um, encouragement by God to go and to share the resurrection evidence and invite this guy to church only to have him shut me down? And honestly, this bothered me for years because I thought I got my wires crossed somehow. Because to this day, he's still an atheist. But let me tell you the rest of the story. Several years later, by then I was a pastor at, at Willow Creek Church, and I was speaking on a weekend, and when I was leaving the platform, a guy came up to me who I didn't know and said, uh, could I shake your hand and thank you for the spiritual influence you've had on my life? I said, what's well, really nice, but who are you? He said, let me tell you my story. He said, several years ago, I lost my job. And I didn't have any money in the bank. I didn't have any savings. I thought I was going to lose my car, my house, everything. I didn't know what to do. I needed a paycheck. I needed some money. So I called a friend of mine that runs a newspaper. And I said, hey, you got any odd jobs I can do to earn a buck for a while? And the guy said, well, do you know how to tile floors? And I thought, yeah, I've tiled our bathroom. I think I can tile floors. Yeah, I could do that. Okay, great. We need some tiling installed and repaired at the newspaper. So if you can come do that, we can pay you. I said, great. So he said, I went to work at the newspaper. 
He said, one day, not long before Easter, I was in the business office of the newspaper. And I was on my hands and knees in a corner behind a big desk working on some tile on the floor. And you walked in there, and I don't even think you knew I was there. And you started talking to this guy about God. And you started sharing the evidence for the resurrection. And you started inviting him to church. And this guy was shutting you down. But I'm on my hands and knees working on this tile, and I'm thinking, I need God. I need to go to church. <laughs> said, as soon as you left, I called my wife. I said, we're going to church this Easter. She said, what? I said, yeah. He said, we came to your church that Easter. I came to faith. My wife came to faith, and our teenage son came to faith, and I just wanted to thank you. And I thought, this is a, this is a new form of evangelism, ricochet evangelism. You share your, you know, Jesus, and, and it bounces off a hard heart. You don't know where it's going to go. Friends, this is the unexpected adventure of the Christian life. You don't want to miss this. We can't do this in heaven. This is our one opportunity to spread this message of hope and joy and grace. So I pray that you'll find your place um, in this community, this congregation, how you can be salt and light in a fresh new way to reach your friends, to reach our community for Jesus Christ. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.